Good morning. My name is Brian. I'm going to be reading the scripture for today and, and then praying for us as well. I got a little bit of echo. There we go. Psalms 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret hard heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would have give it, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Holy and perfect God, we love you. You are the wonderful counselor and our mighty God. You are the everlasting king and the prince of peace. You are the maker of heaven and of earth, and you are the giver of all life. You are so worthy of our praise. The universe, with all its mystery, is a display of how awesome you truly are. Please help us to proclaim your awesomeness and help us to be bold in our proclamation of you. Father, help us to see our sin as an offense against you, no matter how great or seemingly small. Help us to realize that our sin is no secret, not from you. It may be for a while to those around us, but nothing is kept secret from you. Our sin keeps us a slave and keeps us away from you. So help us to confess our sins as David did with a broken and contrite heart. Help us to realize that we need, we need to own what we do, what we think, and how we act. And then lay it all down at your merciful feet. Father, thank you for your great mercy and for your freedom-giving forgiveness. Your forgiveness that only comes through the gift you gave us in your son, Jesus Christ. So help us to desire freedom and in turn desire things that bring you glory. It's much more difficult to fall prey to sin when we are focused on things that bring you glory. 
and unburdened with the religion that's only meant to make us look good. So, Father, we also want a mind that desires to build up the body more so than ourselves. And we want attitudes that glorify you and bring you praise. Because our worth and our purpose is found in you. So, Father, please give us more of you. Point us in your direction and open our eyes to more of you. And, Father, please bless this time of worship. Open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us this morning. And may always only your word be spoken here today and give Pastor Duncan the boldness and clarity to proclaim it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Well, we continue to focus on David and his repentance from his sins of adultery and murder. But today we want to look more closely at how David responded to Nathan's rebuke. The Holy Spirit has given us another window outside of 2 Samuel, not only into David's soul, but also the nature of true repentance. Today we'll be looking at the psalm of repentance that David wrote in response to his sin, Psalm 51. And what a glorious moment in history it must have been when after God had dealt with David and he wrote this psalm and David took this psalm to whoever the worship leader was and said, here, include this in the regular liturgy of the temple. It's amazing that he would do that. I want the people to sing about repentance, and everybody's going to know it's in relationship to the way I blew it. I think that says something about how to fail successfully in the kingdom of God. David's words were not only helpful to them, but for 3,000 years, they've been a guide, a real help to God's people as we seek to escape the darkness of unrepentant sin and find the grace and mercy of God. The best example in the Bible of what a repentant heart looks like is in the psalm that Brian just read. Repentance is vital to the spiritual health of God's people. It is not an accident that the first of Luther's 95 theses that he hung on the Wittenberg door is live in repentance all the time. Many wrong or incomplete and therefore not very helpful understandings of repentance are present in the church today. The church, generally speaking, has something of an allergy in talking about sin, and so repentance therefore doesn't happen near as much as a topic of discussion. But we need to find out what the Bible says about repentance, and there is no better place to correct any of the misunderstandings we might have about repentance than in David's words here. Sadly, many believers carry a tremendous burden of guilt unresolved for their unrepentant sin. And the only way that we can find freedom through the gospel is by repentance. It brings a change of mind about our sin, which brings a change of heart toward our sin and a change of direction away from our sin. That's what repentance is. This is what David models for us here in the psalm. It's important for us to clarify that although all of our sins, as Brian prayed, need to be confessed, David's prayer here 
is not in response to, say, spontaneous sins like selfish anger or lust that without warning bubble up into believers' lives. Now, those sins occur unexpectedly, and we need to confess them as serious offenses against God. We need to quickly acknowledge them, their sin before a holy God. However, David's prayer of repentance is not that. David's prayer of repentance is in response to premeditated sin that he had planned out intentionally, that he turned away from God, and that he tried to bury for the negative consequences he was going to suffer. The spontaneous day-to-day sins, though very serious, over a decade of confessing them and, and bringing them before the Lord, they tend to be sanctified out of us more and more. But these premeditated sins like we see here that David's responding to in this psalm, those are intentional betrayals of God. They may or may not be scandalous in nature. David as the king was obviously, this was a huge scandal on several levels. Those kind of sins require a much more serious response in order to restore our relationship with God. The Old Testament law makes a distinction between that kind of sin and the daily kind of sin. And in places like Numbers 15, it calls those sins high-handed sins. Theologians define high-handed sins as ones a professing believer commits boldly and defiantly, not caring about the consequences. It's almost certain that in a group of this size that some of you are out of fellowship with God for high-handed sins, and you need to repent if you're to restore your relationship and your walk with God and the joy of the Lord. Nearly all believers are going to find themselves in this place at certain times in their life. It's part of living in a fallen world and being fallen. Again, we may not always have committed a publicly scandalous sin like David, but we're bold and defiant. We're doing what we're going to do, and we don't care what God says. We're going to move out in our direction. The overarching sentiment that permeates the entire psalm is found in the opening request, which is, have mercy on me, O God. There's no better prayer for you to pray when you've sinned than that one. That's at the top of the list. James Boyce defines mercy as God's loving assistance to the pitiful. God's loving assistance to the pitiful. By God's grace, David knows here, thanks to his sin, he is not only in an absolutely pitiful position here, spiritually he is in a very perilous place. He's like a sailing ship that's got a large hole in its hull. He's sinking fast, and the only hope he has is for a miracle of God's mercy to keep him afloat. He has absolutely no way to escape disaster on his own. He's totally, he's absolutely dependent upon God to give him what he in no way deserves the mercy of God. David is in the same place that this tax collector is that Jesus cites in Matthew 18, 13. Jesus says, but the tax collector, contrasting him with the Pharisee, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows that if God is not a God, as he says in verse 1, of steadfast love... If God is not a God of abundant mercy, he's in an utterly hopeless position. 
By God's grace, David is deeply grieved as he has realized what he's done to God. And in verse 17, he calls this deep sense of brokenness over his sin and this radical and humble dependence, he calls it a broken and contrite heart. That's what he means. Brokenness over our sin and a sense in which you're absolutely dependent for God to restore you again. As it relates to us, this place of brokenness over our sins is far more important than what words we might utter. The words are not nearly, we can be very eloquent in our confession, but if our hearts are not broken before God, it doesn't really make any difference what we're saying. Before we look into some specific truths about repentance revealed in the psalm, we first need to spend some time looking specifically at how David confesses his sin to God in this psalm. This is important because how we confess our sins to God can be a good indicator of whether or not we're genuinely repentant. And David's confession is a model of how a genuinely repentant person confesses his sin. Beginning in verse 3, David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. A big part of repentance is a heart knowledge of the true nature of, or the true evils of your sin. And David brings that out here in two ways in these verses. First, he reveals very clearly the target of his sin. And second, he acknowledges the manifold evil, the multifaceted evil of his sin. It's absolutely critical that we understand that as David reveals here, all of our sin is targeted at God. We're breaking his law. He's the one who said, act in such and such a way, and we're saying, no, I don't want to do that. That's what David means when he says, against you, you only. And again, we know this may be the most important phrase in the psalm because it's the one that is the most emphatic. Those of you who know anything about Old Testament writing know that the way that they emphasize things is through repetition. And so when he says, against you, you. He's repeating the word you, which means he's saying, it's really important that the people know, as the Holy Spirit has inspired me, that I'm sinning against you. And then he doubly emphasizes it by saying, against you, you only have I sinned. That's the only point of emphasis to that degree in this entire psalm. And when we see that, we ought to say, that must be really important. That must be one of the central themes of this psalm. This is the Holy Spirit's way of flashing a bright light, helping us to see, spend time here. Think about this. Ultimately, even though our sin hurts other people, the one to whom our sins is ultimately directed, the target for all of our sin is God. And our sense of confession of our sin has to be informed by that truth. Internalizing this reality and experiencing the grief this brings may be the most important piece of what a biblically repentant heart looks like. The reason this is so important to 
to understand and to own and to internalize, to, to understand the truth that our sin is fundamentally a personal assault against God. One of the reasons that's important is because that's going to keep us. It's going to prevent us from seeing our sin wrongly. If you understand it's between you and God, it's not going to be about breaking a rule. It's not going to be about making a bad judgment. It's not going to be about making a bad decision because it's personal. We will not repent unless we first understand that in our sin we have personally attacked God. If we don't see our sin in that kind of personal terminology or personal context, repentance isn't possible. Any understanding of our sin that is impersonal, that's detached from the notion of a personal assault against God, that can bring remorse, that understanding. That understanding can bring regret for our sin. It won't bring repentance. Remorse and regret are easily confused with repentance. The popular understanding is you can feel remorseful and you can feel regret, but it's really deep when you feel repentance. No, you can feel just as lousy in remorse and regret as you can in repentance. Remorse and regret can be incredibly painful. You can weep bitterly because we're genuinely grieved by our sin. The issue is not the intensity of what we're feeling. The issue is, issue is what's the reason for our sadness? What's the reason for our remorse? And if it's remorse and regret, those reasons always orbit around me and not God. That's the difference between remorse, regret, on the one side, and repentance on the other. Remorse sounds something like, I can't believe I did that. I am so stupid. I am such an idiot. I've made such a fool of myself. I've hurt other people. God, I am so sorry. That kind of self-abuse or self-hatred is rooted in the fact that your sin has a negative impact on you, and it does. It makes you feel like a failure. We all hate that. We all hate the idea that I'm not very good at this Christianity thing. You regret hurting people who have been impacted by your sin. Remorse will prompt you to tell God you're sorry and ask for his forgiveness. Remorse can drive you to get rid of your guilt and to try to get out of God's doghouse, if you will. But that's not repentance because none of this is what marks a repentant heart and David does not model remorse or Regret, he models repentance in this psalm. If you're not seeking restoration with God for your personal betrayal of God that lies at the heart of your sin, you haven't repented of it. You'll never see the arrogance, you'll never see the wickedness of that unbelieving heart. Tim Keller says this, what makes sin wrong is not just that I broke a rule, but that I broke his heart. Not that I trampled on his law, but I trampled on him. Not that I need to repent in order to get what I want, but I need to repent because otherwise I'm trampling on the very loveliness of God. You, personally, I have trampled on a good friend, someone whose love is unfailing, someone whose compassion is infinite. That's why theologians tell us that sin is treason. That means it's a personal betrayal of our relationship with God. Now, we know that Judas betrayed, and that's true. His betrayal was unique. But all sin, especially these intentional, or what Numbers says, these high-handed sins, those are betrayal in a unique way. This is why the New Testament says that God is grieved 
by our sin. It's an amazing thing to know that I can grieve the Lord of the universe. He gives me that kind of power with him. He's grieved because he takes it personally, because it is personal. And the fact that when I'm doing it, I may not be thinking consciously, I'm doing this against you, that doesn't matter. That doesn't mean it's not personal. It just means I am too blind and deaf and dumb to know that it's personal. But it is because that's the way God receives it. It's a personal offense against God. It's a betrayal on so many levels we could spend a whole message on it. But one of the betrayals is it's a betrayal of God's love for us in the gospel. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us in verse 4 that God chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and that we should be blameless before him. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy people, that we would be blameless before him. And he did the work, of course, to make us holy on the cross of Calvary. That means that when we sin, especially in premeditated ways, we're telling Jesus, your death wasn't enough to make me holy. The love that you showed me in sending your son to die for my sins on the cross, that love is not enough to motivate me to obey you. A second aspect of the nature of unrepentant sin is seen in the three words that David uses to describe his sin in, verse, in these first four verses. Sin, as many of you know, has multiple levels of evil. It's nuanced. It has all sorts of layers and levels within it. And the Bible communicates that because it uses more than one word to define sin. And David uses three of them here in this psalm. And in so doing, what he's saying is there's a lot of wickedness here and it's on different levels. The first word he uses in verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions. Okay? Transgression is from the Hebrew word, and it literally means to intentionally cross a forbidden boundary. Intentionally cross a forbidden boundary. Sin is crossing the moral boundary of God's law, and whether we realize it or not, it's a private declaration of war against God. In transgression, what we're doing is we're saying, I know I am forbidden to cross this line. I know that you personally drew that line. It represents your will for me, and it represents your love for me, and it's your way of saying, I know what is best for you. Transgression says, I don't care about any of that. I don't care about any of that. I know what is best for me. You don't. I'm crossing the line. Now again, the fact that we don't consciously think that way doesn't mean that's not the inclination of our heart. It just means that we're not very thoughtful people. <laughs> we don't think through what we're doing. Transgression is an in-your-face rebellion against God. A second word David uses here is translated in verse 5. It says, I was brought forth in iniquity. Iniquity. This word in the original means as close as possible perversion, okay? From the moment our, of our conception, David is saying we are morally twisted inside. We're twisted. We're bent. David is telling God, when I sinned against you, that was not a fluke. I did it because I have always been bent that way. My sin against you comes from the very center of my fallen nature as a sinner. Now, David is not making an excuse for his sin. He's not saying, I'm sorry, that's just the way I am. No, he's simply admitting that he is a twisted man 
And instead of seeking God's grace to live above his twistedness, he instead surrendered to his sinful nature. And any time we do that, we're going to act in twisted ways because our sinful nature is twisted. The third word that David uses to describe sin is simply translated sin. The word in the original means missing the mark. And it implies that God calls us to perfection. And every sin misses that mark. The fact that God uses three words to help describe the manifold evils of sin implies that when David is praying this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's choosing his words very carefully. He's choosing it in a way so that he's communicating to God, I understand the nuance between my transgressions, my iniquity, and my sin, which means this prayer of repentance was not the product of spontaneous thought. He has seriously reflected about the evils of his sin. In our culture, that feels weird. In the church in North America, which doesn't like to talk about sin, that feels bizarre. Many of the churches in North America, if they were to hear this or they were to read Psalm 51 carefully, they would respond with something like, why are you obsessing over your sin, David? This is a downer, stay positive, this is only gonna bring you down. But this is what David does. This is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means this is how we're supposed to deal with our sin as well, unrepentant, intentional sins especially. For some people, especially those who have very sensitive conscience, consciences, and there are some of those in church, you can overthink your sin, okay? In my counseling ministry, I've had to tell a number of people to say, okay, you've been beating yourself up for years over this. You need to just knock it off. But the fact that the Bible uses multiple words to bring out the multiple evils of sin strongly implies that believers need to spend some time thinking about the manifold evils of their sin. We need to be thoughtful. Now that we've looked at David's confession of sin, now let's look at four other truths revealed about repentance that David models here in this prayer. Unrepentant sin is a spiritually destructive thing on many levels, but David reveals four areas where repentance brings spiritual restoration from that destruction. Four areas of spiritual restoration. The first area of restoration from unrepentant sin that David reveals is our need for restoration from the defiling effects of sin. Our need for restoration from the defiling effects of sin. In verse two, David pleads with God, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David has personally experienced the truth that this kind, especially this intentional sin, it defiles your soul. Our souls are not covered with clear plastic to keep them from getting stain on them. They were like fine silk. They're easily stained and they require very careful and thorough cleansing. In fact, this word translated wash that David uses here, it's literally used in connection with laundering dirty clothes. David knows his sin has left a terrible stain on his soul, and he comes to God pleading with him to remove it from him. In verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. That word purge literally means de-sin. 
take this sin that's locked in the fabric of my soul and purge it, expunge it. We have to see our sin not just as an evil act, not just as an evil desire or attitude. We have to see our sin as moral pollution. Sin taints us. It makes us dirty inside. Verse 3 says, For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. The point is here, this, as hard as we try to pretend that all is normal, we know the stain is there. And it's always there. You understand that your sin clings to your soul like a leech clings to a person that's just come out of a bad lake, and you want that leech off now, and that's where David is here. Repentance can't occur until we see the defilement of our unrepentant sin in our hearts. We first have to feel dirty inside so that we can then seek God for cleansing. A second area of spiritual restoration we need from our unrepentant sin that David reveals here is our need for restoration to fellowship with God. This is arguably the one he gives the most ink to of the four. Unrepentant sin throws a wet blanket on our fellowship with God. Again, I'm not talking about it breaks our relationship with God. That's not, it's, it throws a wet blanket on our fellowship, that sense of intimacy and warmth that we have with God. Our walk with God is a personal relationship. And we all know whether we're married or we just have other good friends or brothers and sisters, that when we do something to hurt that person or those people, that drastically affects the temperature of that relationship. It's just the way it is. Well, our relationship with God is no different. God is a person, which means we relate to him personally. And part of a personal relationship is I can hurt that person and I can push that person away. Now, that does not mean that God is sitting in heaven sulking or resentfully shooing us away. No, it means that our sin has built a wall that separates us from the warmth of fellowship that we once experienced and enjoyed with God. Two requests revealing that this sense of alienation are in verse 9. David prays, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. These two requests speak to David's sense of shame before God. There's a wall that I've put up here. The idea seems to be, don't look on my sin remove them and take them off my record. I don't want your eyes to see them. David knows that you cannot unsee something once you've seen it, and you can't pretend something didn't happen when it did, but he does want God to remove his focus from these sins that are alienating him. In your mercy, please choose to forget this. That seems to be the idea. Verse 11 has two more requests that speak to this need for restoration to fellowship. David says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This great fear of David's probably was motivated by what he personally had witnessed with King Saul. We know from 1 Samuel 16, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul the sense is that God's favor, as confirmed by his Spirit's presence, had left Saul because of his rebellion against God. Now, even though God had made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 that seems to preclude David from that happening to him, David is still very concerned about this. And I think all of us have been in a place where we've had unrepentant sin and we come to God and even though we know we will never leave us or forsake us, there's still a sense in which we're saying, God, don't do that. David knew that for him, to live a life out of fellowship with God 
was a life not worth living. Even though we know from Hebrews 13, in the case of genuine believer, I will never leave you or forsake you, we also know that once you've tasted of the goodness of God and the sense of his presence, a life without the sense of his presence and peace and favor is by comparison a wretched life. And all of us have been down that dark alley. And if you've been down there recently and you've repented, you don't want to go back there. The same concern is motivating David in verse 12 when he prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice he doesn't say restore your salvation. He says restore to me the joy of your salvation. David knew that it is a contradiction to speak of a joyless believer. That's a contradiction. To know God is to know joy. Joy is the second fruit of the Spirit, and there is an abiding joy in the life of a believer who is walking in fellowship with God. However, when we turn from God, when we seek our own way, when we flirt with sin, our joy vaporizes. Sometimes the enemy can steal our joy if we let him as well by lying to us and believing his lies. To a genuine believer, we don't want to live that way, okay? We'll seek restoration, and that's what David is doing here. Another area of restoration we need from our unrepentant sin is our need for restoration to faithfully persevere in the future. Restoration to faithfully persevere in the future. When you repent and you emerge from a season of unrepentant sin and all of it is wiped away and there's that lightness in your soul again, you've been humbled. And like David, you've been reminded anew of just how much depravity there is in your heart, as much as you can know. You've been reminded of the great evil that you are capable of doing. And a repentant believer who's just experienced that does not want to go back into that place again. David feels this keenly, which is why he prays in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. One of the things that's important about this psalm and how it differentiates from the way many people try to repent in the church today is you'll notice that nowhere in this psalm does David resolve to do better. It's not in here. God, I promise I won't do this again. Not in there, okay? And it's not because that desire isn't a good desire. It's because this is a prayer of repentance, and repentance is dependent upon God, not on your new resolve. He's not saying, God, help me to be stronger in my will. He's saying, give me a clean heart. Give me a right spirit. David's been painfully reminded that his heart can quickly turn away from God and his will to do the right thing can vanish in a frightening quick amount of time. And having been humbled by his personal treason against God and the pain of his own guilt and shame, he doesn't want to do that again. David knows that his sin that motivated his temporary insanity with Bathsheba and Uriah, he knows it began in his heart. And so he prays, God, create in me a clean heart. Now, this word create is really important. It's the same word in Genesis where God says, God created the heavens and the earth. Same word. This word create means to miraculously create something out of nothing. That's what God did. David is calling on God to miraculously create in him a new heart that would be resistant to these kinds of sin. 
He's pleading for a heart that will hate sin more and love God more. He also asked God that he would renew a right spirit within me. Some of the translations say a steadfast spirit, a spirit that will continue, that won't go for a while and then move away, but one that will continue in faithfulness. Notice again how utterly God-dependent he is. David is not turning over a new leaf here. That's not what he's doing. He's crying out for God to miraculously recreate his moral compass from the inside out that will be more inclined to say no to sin and yes to God. Another area of restoration necessary when we repent is our need for restoration to worship and ministry. This is verses 13 to 15. He says, then, after I've been restored, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David understands what many of us have experienced, that when a believer is forgiven and cleansed and renewed into fellowship with God again, that life will inevitably produce the fruit of worship, vertical, but also ministry, horizontal. If that hunger for worship and ministry have not been reinvigorated, something's wrong with your repentance. David's repentance doesn't just impact his vertical relationship with God, also his horizontal relationship with other believers. Having seen more clearly his own weakness, he wants to teach transgressors the ways of God, and he's more equipped to do that now that he's seen God's way of relating to a backslidden king. The horizontal reorienting of relationships that come from a repentant heart is seen all over the place. We see it a lot in 1 John. In 1 John 4.20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The point of 1 John and much of the Bible is there is an unbreakable link between how a believer relates to God and how he or she relates to other believers. This is why it's nonsensical when someone says, I love God, I just don't like the church very well. Sorry, not an option. <laughs> you can't do that, that's not possible. If you are in renewed fellowship with God, your fellowship with other believers will also be renewed. David knows that when he is restored, that will result in a renewed passion for worship and a renewed passion for ministry to other people. We see this kind of reckless joy in new converts, okay? They're wonderfully obnoxious, but you also see this in newly restored believers. This is what David is talking about here. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. I don't care who's listening. I'm going to worship you, God. But David also longs to bless God's people. That's what he means in verse 18 when he says, do good to Zion, which in this case is the people of God your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. As we close, I want to just give two final words of application from this psalm. First of all, one thing that's probably already clear, and that is repentance is ultimately a gift of God. This is where many people, it's a big gap. They don't understand this piece. Repentance is ultimately a gift of God. Again, it's really important for us to see that David is not promising to do better next time. No, Everything, everything of significance in this psalm is couched in incredibly God-dependent terms. This psalm is a rapid-fire series of humble requests for God to do his multifaceted work of restoration 
And that's consistent with the rest of Scripture. Paul writes in Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God grants repentance. Peter's preaching to the Jewish leaders in Acts 5.31. Speaking of Jesus, he says, God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance is a gift of God just like faith and just like justification are gifts of God. In repentance, first God gives us the grace to see our sin for what it is and then to humbly cry out to him about our sin, and finally to give us repentance, a new heart, and a right spirit. For a person to make that kind of dramatic change in attitude and behavior requires nothing less than a miracle of God. The illustration I've used again and again, but it's just the best one I can think of, the, the miracle that happens in repentance is like when you go into a slaughterhouse and you are absolutely repelled by the stench of that. But those of you that have met people who work in those kind of places, you know that after they've been there a few months, they don't even notice it anymore. That's what sin does to our soul. Repentance is a restoration of the olfactory sense so that you smell it again. And you smell how much it stinks. That's changing your mind about the sin. It's not mental, it's revulsion. Repentance, number two is a point of application. Repentance is rooted in the blood of Jesus on Calvary's cross. Now you can say, how on earth can that be? David's writing a thousand years before Jesus even lived. How can that be in this psalm? Well, it's clearly implied in the psalm in verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The word that makes the connection between David's sin and the cross of Christ is that word, hyssop. It's a very specialized word. You may recall this word from other places in the Old Testament. Perhaps most famously, it's related to the Jews' exodus out of Egypt. Moses tells the Jews, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning. Hyssop was a small plant, and it was used like a brush, like a paintbrush. And in the Passover, and then later on also in the temple, hyssop was always used to sprinkle blood. What's amazing about this psalm is when David asked God to purge him with hyssop, we know he's thinking about a blood sacrifice because that's what hyssop was used for. The paradox here that makes it so interesting and so clearly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is even though he cries out for cleansing of his sin by blood, he also knows there was no blood sacrifice existing at that time that would cleanse a person from high-handed sin. It didn't exist. So on the one hand, he's calling out for cleansing by a blood sacrifice, and that sacrifice did not that yen that it existed at that point in time. It wasn't there. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know what he's asking for. The cross of Christ. The cross of Christ does cleanse us from all sin. 
1 John 1, 9 says, and that includes high-handed sins. The, the enemy will come in when you've been in rebellion against God because you're acting in ways that are so contrary to what a believer would live like and frankly what most of your life has been like. The enemy will come in and say, it's over, it's done. You're not a believer. You never were. This has all just been a charade. You've shown your true colors right now. Jesus won't do that to you because you just heard the pastor say this morning it was an act of hatred toward God. So I guess it's just over. You're circling the drain. Just go down and forget about it. That's a lie. Forgives us from all sin. Don't let him lie to you. You claim what God has given you in the blood of the Lamb. You claim your forgiveness. It is enough. It is finished in that sense. We who live on this side of the cross have that benefit. David didn't know about it. He just knew that's what he needed. And in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he asks for it. And his son grants that. Well, if you're an unbeliever here today and you've not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you need to know that until you initially make that repentance and trust in Christ, nothing but bad is headed your way. And so learn from David's psalm to repent of your sin. Then you can know the joy of the Lord. If you're a believer and you're stuck, you're stuck in unrepentant sin that makes you feel dirty, that's alienated you from the warm fellowship with God, follow David's example. Come to Christ for restoration to fellowship so that you can lose the burden of your guilt and your shame, so that you can be restored to a place of joy and worship and ministry. May God grant us the grace of repentance because of what Jesus has done for us, for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, these are so Im important for us to know, these truths. Because on the one hand, as your psalmist says here, I was conceived in iniquity. And on the other hand, you desire truth in the inward parts. That's, that's a collision because we're sinful and yet you don't lower your standards. You still want truth in the inward being. You want us to live righteously. And so God, for all of us, we've all been down this road. We all know what it's like to live in rebellion against you when we're saying there's nothing to see here, God, don't pay attention to what I'm doing right now. God, thank you for repentance. Thank the, that you in your grace, your abundant mercy, and your unspeakable grace have provided a way for us to get right with you again. You wouldn't have to do that. But your mercy is so great and abundant that you do. And so God, I pray for myself, I pray for all of us, if we're walking with you, that you would make this a warning for us to say, let's, by the grace of God, continue to walk before God. Father, I pray for those who are here that don't even know you at all. I pray, God, that you would use these words to help them to see how serious their plight is. And Father, for those who are here that do know you, but they're living in unrepentant sin, and it may, just, it may be as much as just frankly loving the world, whatever it is, God, I pray, God, that you would, by your Spirit, awaken them to how serious this is, and that you would give them the grace to repent biblically, as we see modeled here in this psalm. For Jesus' sake, and in his name, amen.